morning, church. Fantastic to have you here this morning. Let's pray. Good God in heaven, we are thankful for this day, for the opportunity and the freedom that we have to come into this place and to worship your name, what you have done for us. We thank you that we have the freedom to come to your word and to and to dig in. We ask that you would bless, bless this time, bless our bless our efforts to root this truth deeply into our hearts. Lord, it's in and through Jesus' precious name that we You turn to John chapter 2, verse 23, where we'll start. We'll go through really much of chapter 3 also, but um, we'll start here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he, he being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name's name when he saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you you earthly things 
and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the, the, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he, is, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked, thing, wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, we ask you, Lord, to be in our midst. That you fill our hearts and our minds with your spirit. And that we would be ready and willing to receive what you would have us it's in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning, we're getting into uh, kind of the, the, the main body of John's letter. John, as I've mentioned a couple times, has this kind of strange start and stop. Like, oh, are we getting into the... We see the start of Jesus' ministry. We, we see that we see the introduction and the start of Jesus. We're not quite sure. This is, I think, I think we finally get into what we would call the main purpose of what John writes for. John, different than the other three gospel writers, is mainly concerned, or or maybe better put, is is focused upon and uses the the words of Jesus. The, the teaching when Jesus teaches or preaches or has dialogue, he uses Jesus' words as the main driving force of how he's going to teach us, how John is going to teach us how, with what Jesus did and said. The, the other gospel writers are, are probably a little bit more concerned with kind of the, the, the movement of Jesus. Yes, Jesus teaches and speaks in the other, other three gospels. But in John's gospel, they become... They become the, the main point. And John kind of does everything else. All the other things that are written in John's gospel are, are basically used to kind of elevate Jesus' words, Jesus' actual teaching. And so today, in chapter 3, we see Jesus now teaching. We, this is really the first time we see Jesus give this kind of extended dialogue, and this is kind of John's main way of teaching. It was obviously Jesus' main way of teaching, but this literarily is John's distinction. Maybe is how I should put it. John also has this uses this literary device called a transition passage, transition verses. 
We see it in verses in the last verses of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And what John does with these, and we'll talk about them as we encounter them at other places, is he uses these verses to kind of bring a thought to a relative close. He's not like saying, we're done talking about this, now we're going to talk about something else. You can forget about all this. It, it absolutely, everything is going to kind of continue on through the story. But he uses these transition verses to kind of bring a close to the main focus being on one topic, and now he's going to kind of move to this new thing. And, and Jesus is the one who is going to teach us all these new, te- new things as we go from here. And so verses 23 to 25 is this transition. Now, you might be wondering to yourself quietly, because I didn't hear anybody say it, how is Ryan going to cover everything in this chapter uh, today? Well, I'm not, because there's way too much, and I don't want to leave most of this stuff out. So we're going to spend at least this week and next week, and, and, and we'll see if we spend a couple more weeks here. But we're going to spend some time here in John 3. But, the, but, but before we get into what Jesus is teaching and, the, and kind of the things that Jesus is saying, I want us to look at kind of what this transition verse is showing us about the first part of chapter 3. So let me read this again for us, 23 to 25. It says, Now when when he, again Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So, here's what, we, here's what we know from John up until this point. John gives us this great introduction where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We get this great introduction to the character of Jesus, the, the Son of God, the Creator of the world, all these wonderful truths, some of them that, that Max kind of pointed out to us this morning out of Hebrews. and just this, uh, we're, we're really excited to meet this character, right, the advent of Jesus. And then we get a couple different stories that are kind of testimony about this guy that other people are going, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the Messiah. We're excited. And then we see Jesus, see Jesus call some of his disciples. And again, that's part of that testimony of who Jesus is. And we see, we see Nathaniel. Jesus like, I knew you were sitting under a fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, yeah, you're the son of God. That was all it took for Nathaniel. He's like, I'm going to show you more greater signs. And confirm that, that confession. And then Jesus in Cana, which is not Jerusalem, by the way, but it's Cana, it's a different region in Galilee, is at this wedding. In his first miracles, he turns water into wine. We talked about this, and this again builds that testimony of who this guy is. He's not just some random teacher. Jesus is not just a random teacher, he's something else entirely. He's something special, something to Make us look deeper, right? To dig deeper. Who is this guy? Last week we see Jesus. He comes to Jerusalem for the Passover. He goes into the into the temple. He's displeased with what's going on. He drives out the drives out the cattle and all the stuff, all the chaos. He he makes this whip. He drives out the money changers. He turns the tables over. And then they're like, "What what gives you the right to do this?" Well, he said, "He said I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise." So Jesus has been doing some stuff, right? 
These aren't just little things. And, and, and evidently, at least, he has done more things, not just those few things that, that we've seen in John. And this has caused many people, John tells us, right? Says when Jesus was in, Jerusalem, was in Jerusalem for the Passover, many believed in his name. These things that Jesus has done has called many people to believe. And then we're told something odd. I think it's odd, maybe, or at least it seems odd in the progression of the story. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And this quietly, mind you, very, very, we have to kind of know other stuff about what the Bible teaches us to understand what's going on here. This shows us that there is kind of two different things that we mean when we talk about belief. And the Bible doesn't really differentiate. In, in, the, in the original language, which is Greek in the New Testament, there's not really a, a, a strong word difference between these two things, but it's more the context. We can have one of two different beliefs. We can have belief number one, which is cognitive. It's in our minds. We see something. We go, I believe. And that's nice, but it's not what we need. What the Bible teaches us good belief is or right belief is, is a belief that is then effectual. It's a belief that then causes an action to come from the thing that we say we believe. And we call this, often we call this faith, because faith is the better, the better word than belief in this, in this instant. Faith is not, or belief is very easily thought to be just, I, I know something, but it's not. But faith is knowledge that then is applied, knowledge that takes action. Effective belief. I use this probably far too often than I should. Maybe I should come up with a new word picture, but but I think it works. If I say, I can say, you know, you might come to me and say, What, well, Ryan, what do you believe two plus two equals? And I can say four, right? Yeah, four. But if if given a test, right, if given a test, if I go into a math class and I get the question two plus two and I write five, I do not believe that two plus two equals four. I can say that I believe it, but I don't have faith that my belief is not effective. It hasn't actually convinced me of anything. We apply this to our, to our belief in Jesus when Jesus tells us, like we sang, that you are free. But then when the test comes and, and my freedom is on the line, if I choose instead to be enslaved, do I have an effective belief? Well, no, I don't. I want to make sure that we don't misunderstand that. There are instances of, of, of shortcoming. That doesn't mean that I'm not saved. It's a mark of my whole life, not just a moment. It's a different conversation. So what's happening in Jerusalem at this time is that there are many people who are seeing the things that Jesus is doing, and they and they believe in his in his name. They believe in what he's saying, but that belief has not taken root, and that belief is not effectual. And we know this because Jesus tells us, or John tells us what Jesus is believing, rather. He says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. We'll come back to that in just a second. Because he knew all people, 
and needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. So has that belief taken root? Is it just, I think 2 plus 2 equals 4, but I'm going to write 5 on the test when it comes. I, I think Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but when it comes down to it, I'm going to do my best to make sure that it's me that's saving me. Jesus does not entrust himself to him, to them. This, I think, is, is simpler than maybe it appears. What does that mean? What does he mean by entrusting himself to them? Is he, is he, is he like trying to get some friends or companions or whatever? I think this is what is happening with the disciples. The disciples, Jesus entrusts himself to his apostles. Um, there is an author, and I couldn't find who, who was the one who said this. So apologize to whoever was the one who came up with this idea. He talks about a, a, um, evangelism strategy. And he calls it the 3-9-M. And he bases it on Jesus' life and ministry, 3-9-M. Um, M being the masses, meaning Jesus preaches to the masses the, the Sermon on the Mount. There's thousands of people there listening to Jesus. He preaches to the masses. And then there's the 9 and the 3, which are the 12 combined, 9 and 3 are the 12 apostles. The 3 being Peter, James, and John, who get to experience just literally everything that Jesus does. There are, there are, I think, maybe five times where it says that Jesus goes completely by himself to pray. Those are the only times that Peter, James, and John are not invited. Peter, James, and John are invited to the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays in the final moments of his life. Jesus, they're, they're invited up on the mountain at, at, at the time of transfiguration when, when Moses and Elijah are there too, and Jesus is shining, and, and Peter's, like, Peter's like, what should I do? Should I build a should I build a hut? Jesus like, tell this, understand. Peter, James, and John got to experience everything of Jesus. And then, and then the other nine, they were with Jesus. And they heard the teaching to the masses. And they also experienced Jesus explaining the, the parables. And so there's kind of three different, for lack of a better way of explaining it, three different levels of, of Jesus teaching the people. And I think the 12 are the ones that Jesus entrusts himself to. And it's the, the reason why Jesus entrusts himself to, if we would turn to, to Mark chapter 4, for example, when Jesus, in Mark, that's the first time Jesus tells a parable. And, and basically the parable is about parables, how, how parables are going to work. And, and, and what he's, Jesus is teaching through his first parable in Mark is that the reason why I'm going to teach in parables is because I can't give the simple answer to everyone because not everyone is going to receive the answer. And so there is this idea that, John, that Jesus teaches us in these parables that in order to get what Jesus gives, we have to, we have to reach for it. There has to be a, a digging, if you will, towards Jesus. And if you take the time and exert a little bit of effort toward a parable it opens itself up to us. But if I do not desire to go deeper, let me say it maybe in a different way. If all Jesus is to me is fire insurance, I want to stay out of, I want to stay out of hell, and so I'll say, Jesus, Jesus, and that will get me out of hell, then I'm not going to dig deeper. Nor do I actually have a relationship with Christ. And what the Bible teaches us, the Bible teaches us, is if that's where my belief stops, I do not have belief. Now we, in our 
current environment of whatever you want to believe is right don't really like that. But this is what we're this is what we're taught. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that it's this great obstacle that you have to go to go through. Jesus is not teaching us that in order to to know me and to believe me, I'm gonna I'm gonna run you through the coals. No, it's this just slight tipping desire that we reach out for Christ, and there He is. There are many people in the crowd who hear Jesus' parables and take that extra step of action, take that extra step of belief, rather, and find the truth that is found in these. There are also a great number of people who hear Jesus' teaching, and we often, as Christians, we wonder, how can anybody hear this story and not be a Christian? So this is kind of what sets this up. This is the transition verse that is supposed to help us clarify what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus in this next section. So Jesus, or, so John establishes it for us. That there are many people who are saying, Jesus, Jesus. But Jesus knows that not all of them have, to use the Christian cliche, travel from head to heart. So what is exactly do we see in the story of Nicodemus? So verse 1 of chapter 3, let's look at this briefly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss a ton of stuff, just to give you a heads up. Because next week we're going to talk about that ton of stuff. There are so much just great stuff in John chapter 3. We're getting there, we promise you. Verse, verse 3, or verse 1, excuse me, chapter 3. It says, now when, when there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There is a lot of information packed in that. First, probably for the church that John is writing to, we know Nicodemus personally. We probably maybe even met him. Most of the time when a name is actually given of a person who is not a primary character in the story, like Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, it's because we know who these people are. He's a ruler of the Jews, so he's probably prominent enough that we know who he is. So Nicodemus comes. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees are a, a section of the Jewish population. They're, they're prim primarily teachers of the people, rabbis themselves, themselves or, or in a position, maybe, maybe rabbis or scribes, or in, in Nicodemus's case, maybe a ruler of the people probably on the Sanhedrin. And, and their, their people and their, their fundamental belief, what kind of separates them from everybody else is that they're Main focus is the law and getting it right, following the law properly. The, the, the Sadducees, they're, more, they're mostly concerned about the temple, doing the temple right, Pharisees right. There are not that many Pharisees. Josephus tells us that there's probably about 600. Josephus is a first century Jewish historian. Probably about 600 men, teachers, who are vocationally Pharisees. So this kind of really shrinks this down. So Josephus, or not Josephus, Nicodemus, he's, he's very fixated upon kind of getting the understanding right. So I'm going to read the, I'm going to read the law, and I want to, I want to understand. That's, that's what the Pharisee drive is. I want to understand. And so this is why this encounter is so unusual. So he comes to Jesus. Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night. Now, most of us know that there is, there is an understanding that if you're going to do something at night, it's probably a little bit shady. 
or maybe you just don't want other people to know. Most people, most people when they read this, they think that what's happening is that Nicodemus, he wants some information from Jesus, but he's a little bit worried about everybody else, right? He's a little bit worried about what everybody else is going to think about him. Okay, so he's, he comes to Jesus and immediately he says, Rabbi. Now for John, as we've gone through John, John has shown us when, when, uh, when uh, the two disciples of John come to Jesus, they say, Rabbi. When Nathaniel comes to Jesus, they say, Rabbi. John uses this picture to show us a sense of respect held by the person saying Rabbi. So Nicodemus in this case is not just saying. We don't think that Nicodemus is just saying it just to puff Jesus up. He's saying it because at least at some level, at least at some level, he has a respect for Jesus. Rabbi. I've ta- I talked a couple weeks ago about the process that you have to go through to become a, a vocational rabbi in the first century. You have to go through the schooling. You have to be trained by a rabbi. We don't. We can't say 100% that Jesus wasn't actually this, but most of what we see in the Bible kind of indicates that Jesus wasn't actually this. And so for Nicodemus, a ruler of the people, especially a Pharisee, to come to Jesus and to say rabbi is pretty astounding, actually. It seems at least at this point that Nicodemus may be one of these people who has a belief in Jesus. Was a belief in his name. By the way, just as a quick side note, when, when, they, when the Bible says this belief, belief in his name, it doesn't mean the five letters that make up the name Jesus. right? It means the, the person, Jesus, the essence of who he is, what he is going to do, what he has done, that kind of stuff. I talk about this names all the time, so I'm not going to spend any more time with that. So Nicodemus, he, he's probably one of these people. But I think what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to kind of expose where that belief stops. So so Nicodemus, he says, Rabbi, term of respect, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you. Again, it's really hard to think that that's just Nicodemus blowing smoke. There at least some level, Nicodemus has been watching Jesus close up or from afar, and he's seeing Jesus do some things that are just not possible if God is not with you. Maybe he's heard about the miracle on Cana, that Jesus turned water into wine. I'm sure that spread rapidly. Maybe we haven't even seen some of the miracles that Jesus does. John tells us at the end of his gospel, if I wrote down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. So Jesus is obviously doing some stuff. Nicodemus is seeing it, and he's like, hey, Nobody else can do this unless they're from God. And it sure seems like Nicodemus is he's ready to give a, to give a question. Say, hey, I, I got you. I'm going to ask you something. And in, in an awesome, just fantastic Jesus form, Jesus doesn't give him the chance to ask the question. He doesn't give him the chance to ask the question. Instead, Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. It goes right to the heart. I think, I think this is how most of us experience Christ early on in our, in our walk with him. We come to a belief in him. We see something happening. We're shocked and amazed and we want to know more. And we come to Jesus and we're going to ask him a question. Or we're going to ask the church a question that, that seems to have bearance. And yet God says, 
That's not the thing that matters at this point. It's the same thing that happens with the rich man who followed all the laws and he comes to Jesus. I've been doing all these things for my whole life. What does it take for me to become, to, to, to enter into the kingdom of God? He says, sell all your stuff. And he was sad because he was a rich man, right? Sell all your stuff. This is the point at which we go from having a belief that this guy is a good person to having a belief that this guy is my Lord and Savior. There is, there is something in probably most of our lives as we are walking nearer and nearer to Christ that, we're, that, that is kind of holding us back. And for Nicodemus, it's his, this idea of the, the pharisaical, i got to get it all right, i got to know it and understand it in order to do that to follow him. So Jesus goes, you don't get to ask your question because your question isn't going to do you any good. My question will. My statement will. So to, to try to bring this into our individual lives, if there's ever a point in your life, whether you are a believer already, or if you're not there yet, but you're starting to think about it, and it just seems like everything that's going on in your life is just hitting that one thing, it's probably Jesus ignoring your questions and asking you one that matters. So we should probably perk our little ears up. So here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, hey, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, collectively, as a group, I want us all to do this. Let's all collectively say the same thing that Nicodemus says. What? Come on. What? Because that's exactly what Nicodemus is going to say. And that's exactly what every single one of us would say. Because this doesn't make any sense in the conversation. Jesus like, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus like, Rabbi, we know you're doing some great things. And Jesus like, hey, you've got to be born again. Now all of us New Testament people, New Testament believers who have heard the Bible and have heard the Christianese statement, you know, you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again. We all know it's a spiritual matter. Nicodemus doesn't. Right? Everything about Nicodemus' belief system tells him that it's not about the spiritual. It's about me making it right. And so Jesus says, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus immediately, just like the rest of us would, he goes directly to the literal interpretation of what Jesus just said. How can a man be born if he's old? I cannot re-enter my mother's womb and be born again. I can't. Too big. And nobody can contest this. Even, even Jeremiah is just about one. He's already too big. And this is the Nicodemus like, what is happening in this conversation? How did we get here? At, at some point, I feel a little bit bad for Nicodemus because and so he, I can't be born again. I can't. Am I supposed to enter my mother's womb again and be born? Jesus, is like truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He doubles down. He really says nothing different. He just adds the water and spirit. By the way, if all all of you are going to go, explain the water and spirit. I'll talk about that next week. I promise. He doubles down. He doesn't explain it any deeper. At least not to Nicodemus' ears. 
unless you're born again of water and spirit, he cannot, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everything, everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus still lost. How can this be? And Jesus, he says, you are a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things. I'm going to skip through some stuff to keep save some time here. So, so here's the progression. Rabbi, we know you're sent from God. You got to be born again. Huh? How can I be born again? You got to be born again. You got to be born of the Spirit. You, you can't just be flesh. You got to be born of the Spirit. Huh? How can, how can this happen? How can this be? And then Jesus challenges Nicodemus. He said, he's, he's like, you're a teacher of the you're the, you're a teacher. You're out telling all these people about about God and you don't get it. How can you be a teacher? It's a challenge to Nicodemus. And and then and then Jesus says that he says this in verse 12. He says if if I if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And this is that same sense of challenge. Right? The same kind of idea of the parables in the other Gospels. If you, can't, if you can't reach out and grasp what the parables are teaching, how can I tell you the things that are truly complex? Like the mechanics of how I can, I can be spiritually born again. Even as a New Testament believer, with all of the Bible to explain it to me, and multiple authors of the Bible explaining how we're spiritually reborn. I still don't quite get the mechanics of spiritual rebirth. But Jesus says, it's okay, you don't need to actually know the mechanics. You just know that you need to be spiritually born again. You need to be born not of flesh and the things of you, but you need to be born of the Spirit and the things of God. And so we ask the question that I think Nicodemus is very, very poignantly asking at this point, what is that then? If I'm supposed to have a belief in Jesus that becomes effectual in my life, what is the belief that is going to be effective in my life? It's a very simple answer. It's Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus our Lord and Savior. It's a God who loves you in, in the midst of your sinful and wayward ways. It's a God who loves you so much that he gave himself, his son, to die for you. Let me read this for you in closing. Again, we'll talk about this next week. Here's what I want you to think about as I read this and as we go into the week. What is it about this statement, this thing that Jesus is going to say to us, that is just something that I have in my head versus something that changes who I am? 
how does this change who I am? And maybe a better question is, does it? And if it doesn't, is it because there's something to hold in its place? Let's start in verse 14. I think verse 15 is probably where it starts more purposefully. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Meaning crucified. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Here it is. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. And and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you. We thank and praise you for giving us your Son. And we ask that all the things that we want to keep hidden, all those dark places in our life, that we would allow your light to shine. That we would open up our hearts to receive the saving work of Jesus. That we embrace His goodness and His love for us. That we would take our focus off of earthly, fleshly things and we would put it on You and put it on His work. Great God in heaven, we are grateful and thankful for Jesus our Savior. It is in His precious and holy name.